Let's open our Bibles together to John chapter 10. I'll begin reading at verse 22 through the end of the chapter. Please listen as is appropriate for the word of God. The word as Jesus says in this passage, that cannot be broken. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, quote, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp, and he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true, many believed in him there. So read the words of the living God. Lord Jesus, we long for the day when we will stand before you and see your face. We long for the day when we will begin the next version, the next stage of eternal life. But until then, we ask for your strength, your guidance, your transforming power to follow you and stay the course. And Lord, if there's anyone here today who is not yet your sheep, 
Would you let them hear your voice and call them to yourself? For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So as I read the story to you just now, I'm sure elements of it were very familiar, even if you haven't read this passage in a while. It seems like almost every narrative in the last several weeks has included the same elements, doesn't it? Are you getting kind of tired of this interchange between Jesus and the Pharisees? He does something amazing. They say, that's blasphemy, that's horrible. He heals a man, raises a man, uh, teaches, he feeds thousands, and they say, that's bad, you can't do that, you can't do that. And there's this interchange back and forth. They're doing everything they can to shut him down, to end his, his ministry and ultimately his life. And you think, okay, John, we got it. Right, John, over and over again, as, as uh, Dan and Eric and I get together every week to prepare these uh, sermons, we think, uh, okay, we want to stick to the text, but we've been preaching this sermon now for like three months. Uh, everybody's got it. We, we have it. So why does John spend so much time telling basically the same story over and over again? Well, if you remember, John told us the purpose of writing this gospel. At the end of the gospel, he says, I'm writing so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and that in believing, you'll have eternal life. The Jews were the ones looking for the Messiah. So his first audience, his primary audience uh, for, for John was the Jewish people. And he has to prove that, they are, that Jesus is the Messiah. He has to give these signs uh, to testify to that. But there's another thing that John has to do. He has to undermine the Pharisees because the Pharisees had a lock on the belief and the practice of the Jewish people. They had political authority, they had religious authority, and they controlled what the Jews did and thought and how they behaved. And so John has to undermine their credibility so they'll look afresh at what Jesus did and what he taught. Can you imagine living in a culture where a government has mind control, where the government tries to control your education and your thinking and your behavior? Anybody? I mean, it's, it's far afield for us, right? No, no, we, we sort of live in that world, but at least our government doesn't have religious authority over us yet. The time may be coming. But in, in John's original audience in their day, the, the Pharisees controlled it all. And the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders controlled the behavior and the beliefs of the Jewish people. And John has to undermine those things. So that's why he keeps showing the hard heart of the Pharisees and what appears to us as just ridiculous response to these amazing things that Jesus is doing. And the Pharisees say, yeah, 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 it's great that you healed that blind guy, but you did it on the Sabbath, and that's bad. John is showing their, their I'll be nice, their hard-heartedness. So next, next time in chapter 11 and so on, we do start to turn a little bit to, uh, to away from this, uh, this repeated refrain. But let's look at our text here this morning. It says, uh, took place at the Feast of Dedication. John has kept us aware of the Jewish calendar throughout John, and uh, here he brings in this Feast of Dedication. If you were to search through the Old Testament and look for the institution of the Feast of Dedication, you would not find it. This is not an Old Testament feast. 
This is a feast that started in the intertestamental period, 165-164 BC, when the Jews for a little while, under the leadership of Judas Maccabeus, when they were able to throw off their, uh, the oppressors, uh, and they celebrated God's deliverance of Israel at that time in and, and what is called the Feast of Dedication, later became the Festival of Lights, and in our day, this is known as Hanukkah. Yeah, you guys are good. Yeah, Hanukkah, we, we don't celebrate. They celebrate this uh, every year about the same time that we celebrate Christmas is Hanukkah. That's this feast right here. So they're in Jerusalem, and it's wintertime, and Jesus is walking in the temple in the, under the porch of Solomon, it says, and the Jews come to him and they say, hey, Jesus, you haven't been straightforward with us yet. Just tell us. Just, just say it. We want to hear the words. Say it. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? It would, it would be wonderful to think that all of these Jews wanted to hear him say it for pure motives. That they were here saying, Jesus, yeah, we believe you. We are, we are in awe of all that you're doing. But we don't want to worship a, a false god. We don't want to follow a false messiah. So just tell us so that we can follow you and, and know that you're really the messiah. It would be great if that was their motive. That's not their motive. They're setting another trap. They want him to say that he's the Messiah so they can say that's blasphemy because you're not the Messiah and they can take care of him and get him out of the way. Jesus eludes the question a little bit. There's two different circumstances where somebody on trial, basically, would elude the, giving the straightforward testimony. We saw an example of this in our day, oh, 20 years or so, when there was a president of the United States who was rung up on charges of obstruction of justice and lying under oath, some things never change, right? And this particular president was guilty, and there was evidence that he was guilty, and as he's giving his defense, he said, everything hinges on what the meaning of is is. Some of you remember that encounter, right? Let's define our words very carefully. If by is you mean, did it ever happen? Well, that's one thing. If you mean by is, is it ongoing now? Absolutely not. That's not true. And he played some games there. If, you're, if, you're, if the prosecution has evidence against you and you're trying to avoid the conclusion, that might be a good time to give a, an ambiguous answer. The other time you want to do that is when you realize that the, the, the jury is not just. When everything is stacked against you, when the, the prosecutors and the attacks and everyone who's going to decide your fate, they're not interested in the truth. They just want you to entrap yourself. That's what's going on here. Jesus, just tell us if you're the Messiah. And if he does, wham, that's all the evidence they need. They will take him out. Jesus says, I already told you. I told you. Now, Jesus didn't actually say to the Jewish people, I'm the Messiah. He was very careful when and where he used that terminology. He did it with the woman at the well. Remember that from John chapter 4? He told her that he was the Messiah. He told his own disciples that he was the Messiah. But for this very reason, he was careful not to say it in public to the whole group. So what does he mean when he says, I told you? that I may not have used those words, 
But everything that I do testifies that I'm the Christ. What was the Messiah coming to do? He was coming to make the lame leap like deer. He raises lame people. He gives them the ability to walk and to dance. What was the Messiah going to do? He was going to give sight to the blind. Jesus heals a man blind from birth, gives him sight. And he proclaims good news. All of these things the prophet said the Messiah would do when he comes. He says, the works that I do in my Father's name, they are all the evidence you need that I am the Messiah. And yet you don't believe me. I can say the words. If my works don't convince you, my words are not going to convince you. You don't believe me. Why didn't they believe him? Verse 26, you do not believe me because you're not of my sheep. I'm the shepherd. You're not in my fold. You're not in my flock. And that's why you don't believe me. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Jesus is saying, when I show up to a group of people, and I tell them who I am, when I do these things before them, when I call them, they hear my call. They know the sound of my voice. Other shepherds, we saw this last week, they don't pay attention to someone who's not their shepherd. But if I'm their shepherd, when I speak, they listen. And I know them. The scripture says elsewhere, the Lord knows those who are his. Jesus says, I walk into a room, I speak, my sheep hear my voice. Other people don't. If they're not my sheep, they don't hear me. But my sheep hear my voice, and I know who they are. But then there's an observable act that everybody can see when someone hears the voice of Jesus, what is it? They follow. Jesus shows up, calls by name, makes his, his sound, and he walks out, and his sheep get up and follow him. That's what we can see. It's the same thing in our day. When we preach the gospel, we are being the voice for Christ. We're his instrument to call his sheep. And when we go to foreign lands or we go across the street or across the hall and we proclaim the gospel, Jesus is sounding his shepherd's call and his sheep will hear it and they will follow him. That's how we know who his sheep are. They follow him. Notice he didn't say, my sheep go to church every Sunday. Now, you should if you're his sheep, but that doesn't automatically make you one of his sheep. He didn't say, my sheep are baptized, though as Jeff covered in the Sunday seminar, you should, and his sheep will be baptized. But it's not those kinds of things that we can just tack on and say, oh, I know that's a Christian. No, you literally follow Christ. Well, I shouldn't say literally because he's not here to follow. You pursue Christ. You go where he wants you to go. You do what he wants you to do. That's the mark of his sheep. It's not just a profession, it's not just a, a religious experience, it's not going through a ritual, it's not belonging to a club, it's saying, that's my shepherd, and I will obey him and go wherever he leads me. 
One of the hardest questions that I get asked by people in the church is when a parent comes to me and says, you know, my, my child, my, my growing child, my grown child maybe, who grew up in the church, professed faith young, was baptized young, maybe uh, led in the youth group or something, they get to college or beyond, and they're no longer following the Lord. They're, they're not interested anymore in the things of God, or they're at least flirting with dangerous things. And the parent comes and says, is there hope? What am I supposed to think about this? Am I supposed to look back at those first 15 or 20 years of their life and say, that was all a lie? That was all a sham? Of course, as a parent, it's heartbreaking to even think about. And the answer is, I can't tell you the state of their heart. But here's what Jesus says, my sheep, follow me. When you have someone who is no longer following Jesus, it at least raises the question, is this person one of Jesus' sheep? Because by definition, the scripture says, the sheep continue to follow. We see this kind of thing over and over again in the New Testament. The writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 3 that his people are those who hold fast their confession until the end. It's not those who begin the journey who are his sheep, but it's those who finish the journey who are his. We've got to continue. We've got to persevere. We've got to keep looking for the shepherd and follow him to the end. Anyone who jumps off to another path gives good reason to doubt where they are. And can I say to you in that situation, whether it's your children or parents or brothers or friends or people you care about, when you see someone who is not following hard after Christ, you don't do them any good to say, yeah, but when you were 10, you said you believed Jesus, and I think that counts. If they've walked away, telling them that is not helpful. The last thing you want to do is be guilty of giving them false hope and false assurance. No, we need to say, it doesn't really matter what you did when you were 10. You've got to stay true to the shepherd all the way to the end. That's what Jesus says. That's what this New Testament says. We've got to keep working, keep following, keep serving. Perseverance is one of the doctrines we believe. Perseverance of the saints is how it used to be described. We keep going. We keep going. And our shepherd, again, borrowing from Hebrews, our shepherd reached glory through what the psalmist calls the valley of the shadow of death. It's a hard path that he took to get to glory. Well, guess what? If we follow him, it's going to be a hard path. We don't become Christians and then have an easy, wonderful, cushy life, just enjoy good things and then get to go to heaven. No, there's trial, there's temptation, there's an enemy trying to get us off the path. And Jesus says, come follow me even through the hard things. That's what his sheep do. They hear his voice, he knows who they are, and they follow him to the end. 
So, clearly, our salvation is up to us, right? It's all about you and me following to the end. No, that's only half the story. Then Jesus says, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My sheep, he says, I give eternal life. It's not something you've earned. I give it. They will never perish. If you're his sheep, you cannot perish. Why? Because you're in his hand. And he's strong enough to hold on to you no matter what. When my son was young, we played this little game where he would have something, a little toy or something, and I would yank it out of his hand. That's how I taught him to share, see? <laughs> and then he would come try to take it away. And I would show him how strong dad is. You can't take this out of my hand. And he would try and try and try, and he couldn't. Guess what? He's 14. He still can't take it out of my hand. <laughs> but the day's coming. <laughs> One of these days when he'll probably be able to wrestle it out of my hand. Jesus is stronger than me. And he's stronger than your father. And he's stronger than everybody. If you are in the hand of Jesus no one can wrestle you out. Think of it this way. Think of a father walking on a very dangerous path, and on either side of this very narrow path, uh, you'll fall to your doom. And he's got a couple of children, a couple of young children. If it's me and I'm walking this dangerous path, a couple of young children, I have to get them from here to there. What am I going to say to those children? Hold on. Grab my pants legs and hold on. Because I don't want them falling off. But if they're three or four years old, and I say, here, grab onto my pants legs, and let's go, what are the chances that the three of us make it to the end? Zero, right? They're probably not strong enough to hold on all the way. They certainly are not focused enough to stay, pay attention. In fact, the boys are like, I want to go down there, <laughs> right? So I'm going to say, hold on, grab a hold of my pants legs. But then to make sure that we make it across, I'm going to grab them by the back of the shirt and ensure that we make it to the end. They have a job to do. They need to hang on to me. But their security is not in their ability to hang on to my pants. Their hope and their security is based on me being stronger than them and making sure they make it to the other side. That's what's going on here. Follow me, he says. My sheep will follow me. But ultimately, your eternal destiny, thankfully, does not rest upon you. If you're in his hand, he will not let anyone or anything snatch you out. Now, if I'm carrying these boys across the path, I think couple, three or four-year-olds, I can handle that. I can get them. No matter how much resistance they put up, I can get them across. But what happens if I encounter someone stronger than me on this path? Well, now we're all hurting. 
Jesus says, not only are you in my hand, but look at verse 29, my Father has given them to me. He is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them from the Father's hand. So the first line is, no one will snatch them from my hand. The second line is, no one has the ability to rip them out of the Father's hand. It cannot be done. If you are truly his and you are in his hand, there is not a force or a power in the entire universe that can take you out of the Father's hand. It is guaranteed he will give you eternal life and you will not perish. That's our hope. Your call, your responsibility, hang on to the pant leg of Jesus. But ultimately, if you get it to the end, it's because he took you there. So it sounds a little bit like Jesus is saying, it's great that I'm holding on to you, but even greater that the Father is holding on to you because the Father is stronger than me. So just to correct any misunderstanding there, Jesus says, verse 30, I and the Father are one. Now, some people read this. Some people who don't believe that Jesus is God. And they say all that Jesus is claiming here is that I and the Father are one in mission. One in action. We know that's not what he meant because of what the Jews did in response. The Jews picked up stones again to kill him. If all Jesus was saying is, I'm on the same mission as the Father, every Jew was supposed to be on the same mission as the Father. That's just good Judaism. Go where God tells you to go. Do what God tells you to do. No, no, no. Jesus is clearly saying here, don't make too great a distinction between me and the Father because we're one. Yes, we're one in purpose. Yes, we're one in action, one in mission, but we're also one in essence. I am one with the Father, and the Father is one with me. Jesus is not the Father. We're not modalists. We're Trinitarians because the Scripture is Trinitarian. There is a distinction in person between the Father and the Son. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. I am not Gabe, and Gabe is not me. The Father is not Jesus, Jesus is not the Father. But they are one in deity, one in essence. And he made that point so clearly that the Jews picked up stones to kill him because of his claim to be one in essence with the Father. I love Jesus' response. I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? Are you stoning me from, from healing the blind man? Is that what you're stoning me for? Are you stoning me for healing the lame man? Is that, is that what the, the offense? Are you stoning me because I fed you when you were starving? Is that what you're upset about? I don't know if it's okay to use the word snarky with Jesus, but oh man, he's just a master at the rhetoric here. The Jews answered, no, no, for good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be 
God. See that? There's no doubt in their mind what Jesus was claiming. So if you are one of the original readers of John here, and you'd read it over a couple times, you would notice some irony. How does John begin? In the beginning was the, and the word was, and the word was with. Yes. The word was God, and the word was with God. And then a little bit later, the word became flesh. So first he establishes that this word is God. And that word, that God, became human. Notice what the Jews accuse him of. Just the opposite. You're a mere man. And you're making yourself out to be God. That's blasphemy, they say. We have to execute you for daring to say that you're God. So again, Jesus has a response. Has it not been written in your law? You know your word. You know the Old Testament. He's, he's now using the word law here to describe the entire Old Testament. It's written there in your law, quoting from Psalm 70, uh, 82. I said, you are God's. Psalm 82, if you go back and read it, it's only a few verses, and it's, it's, uh, we're not entirely sure who's, who this is being said to. Uh, certainly throughout the Old Testament, there are times when Israel is called the son of God. God says about Israel, you are my firstborn son. Angels are called sons of God and judges over the nation of Israel because they sit in the seat of God and judge the people. Sometimes they are referred to as God's small g. So we don't know exactly which of those in Psalm 82 is intended, but there it says, God is saying, I, I call you gods. You are gods. So Jesus says, you're upset that I call myself a son of God when in your law, men are called gods. So why are you singling me out? The scripture, which cannot be broken, contains this, and those who received the word of God are called gods. How much more is it appropriate for me, who is sanctified by the Father, who's sent into the world by the Father, you're saying I'm blaspheming, but how much more worthy am I to be called the Son of God than anybody else if the Father has set me apart for this? What say you? And then he says, if I do not do the works of my Father, don't believe me. Again, if healing the blind and raising the lame and soon raising the dead and feeding thousands uh, with just loaves and fishes, if those are not the works of God, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even if you don't take me at my word, believe my works. How else do you explain this? Where would I get this power of healing and so on, if not from the Father? How do you explain this? It says, but I want you to know, even though they don't believe, and many of these folks will not believe, I want you to know and understand the Father is in me and I in the Father. This theme is going to be repeated over and over again when we get to the later chapters when Jesus starts teaching about the unity of the church. 
The unity that we have with each other is grounded upon the unity that Jesus has with the Father. You need to know this. The Father is in him. He is in the Father. They're one. So what did the Jews do in response? Good point, Jesus. Let us think this over. Surely you have to be from God because of all these amazing things that you do. Yeah, no, that's not the response. The response is they were seeking again to grab hold of him and end his life. But his hour had not yet come. So he eluded their grasp, went back to the place where John had originally started this whole thing, and there it says, many believed. They said, John didn't come doing these signs, but this guy is doing these amazing signs. He must be from God. And they believed. They put their faith in him. Many of them said. So there, there are several things to take home here, but the, the one I want to narrow in on is remember the context. Here we have the political powers that be who are deciding what's okay to, to believe on threat of persecution if they didn't. Remember we saw in the passage recently that the, the man who was blind, who, who Jesus healed, he and his parents were threatened with excommunication out of the synagogue for claiming that Jesus was the Messiah. And the, the man himself was eventually kicked out because he said, I'm a believer, I follow him. They had political power, they had religious power. Right now, we have this thing in America called freedom of speech. And I know it, it, it kind of feels like it's under attack, and I, I guess to say it's under attack by at least some, that, that's legitimate. But really, I'm standing up here in front of you without any concern that the police are going to show up and drag me down to jail for preaching the gospel. I'm pretty confident that if I were charged and arrested for that, I would win my case. Because that's the precedent. That's the law of the land. I have the freedom to say this. You have the freedom at work, in your neighborhood. You have the freedom to tell people about Jesus. You might get mocked. You might get shamed. In some circumstances, certainly you could lose your job, but if you could actually prove that the reason you lost your job was because of your religion, you would win that case. Now, there's a lot of, lot of um, uh, strategic employers around that know how to fire you, uh, and, and there could be consequences there. But that's not the law of the land. The law of the land says you're free, I'm free to preach the truth, to believe the truth, to worship here without threat of persecution. We are able to say what we want. You can get on social media, you can write letters, you can go on the news, whatever, say what you want. In fact, the one positive thing of our tweeter-in-chief is that the outrageous things that he says does open the door for us to say whatever we want to say. Right? It's actually a good thing for the gospel that people are saying some outrageous things out there, especially people in influential positions. Because then when we come and say, hey, we love you, and we want to make you right with God, and we want to provide eternal life for you, that doesn't sound as outrageous as some of the other things that are out there in social media. So it's, it, it, we're getting a little reprieve, it seems. But it's not going to last. 
it's not going to last. The scripture tells that the enemy works through the government and he is out to destroy the church. The devil hates us. He hates us. And he's doing everything he can to discourage us, to dissuade us from the truth, to make us keep our mouths shut, and where he can gain influence with the sword of the state, he will bring it against the church. He's already doing it in other parts of the world. We have brothers and sisters in other parts of the world that right now, today, on the Lord's Day, they can't stand up publicly and say what I'm saying for threat of punishment. Right? We call it the underground church. They have to meet together secretly and evangelize secretly or else they will suffer the consequences of a hostile state. And it's just a matter of time before it comes here. I don't know when, but it's coming. When we hear that, when we think about that, the question often comes, will I be faithful? Will I stand up in the face of persecution and hold fast my confession? If there truly is threat of punishment, imprisonment, loss of job, worse than for myself, for my family, if there's threat against my family, could I stand by and watch someone persecute my wife and my children and still hold fast to the gospel? Still confess Jesus as Lord? It's a good question. Jesus said some really strong things about this. He said, if you confess my name before men, I will confess your name before the Father. But if you shrink back from men and are ashamed of me before men, I will be ashamed of you before the Father. That's not good for our advocate to say, I don't know him. I don't know him. Where's our hope? Our hope is that if you are in his hand, you can't get out. The Lord knows who are his. If you are his, he will keep you until the end. Your shepherd will not let you wander off. And he is stronger than anyone and anything. He's certainly stronger than the devil himself. He defeated the devil already. We sang about it. Victory is sure. It's just a matter of time till all of his sheep from every tribe, tongue, and nation will gather around the throne and proclaim the praise of Jesus, our shepherd. It will be, it is sure for his sheep. We just hang on to his britches, no matter what comes. I love how the Apostle Paul put it. This is what he said to the church at Philippi. He says, not that I have already obtained it, talking about resurrection, that next life, standing before the Lord. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect or already reached the goal. I haven't, he says, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Do you see how both 
grasps are there. I'm laying hold of the resurrection. I'm doing everything within my power to get there, but ultimately my security is not in my ability to hang on. It's I was grabbed hold of by Jesus. And he will bring me to the resurrection. So whether it's persecution or temptation or whatever it is, we keep our focus on the shepherd. We hang on to his pants. He will hold on to us and bring us safely to the end. If you're his, if the Father has given you to Jesus, you cannot get out of his grip. And that's your security. I'm going to ask Dwight, one of our elders, to come and pray for us as we think about these things.